You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. It's really delightful to have you here today. My name is Alex Thier, and I'm the executive director here. Uh, but more importantly for our discussion today, um, I am a deep friend, admirer, uh, watcher of Afghanistan. Um, and I'm really excited uh, for the conversation uh, that we have here today. Um, our team has been doing a lot of work on some of these big picture questions about the nature, role, and effectiveness of public finance, engaging with fragile states, um, how services are delivered effectively in fragile states. And so it's something that is of deep interest and work here in this institution. Um, and Afghanistan has been a central part of that work and exploration. And so what I'm excited to welcome you all here for today um, is a searching conversation. Uh, because the reason that we are all here um, is uh, that we are in a pickle. Um, we have uh, millions of Afghans who have waited many, many years uh, to figure out what a peaceful and prosperous future could look like. And it seemed as though in 2001, uh, there was going to be an opportunity um, like one that Afghanistan had perhaps never seen or at least not seen in a generation uh, to enjoy that, to turn a corner, uh, to think about the reformation, even rebirth of the state and the politics and the social contract, um, and that millions of people who had been deprived of their future uh, the opportunity to live peacefully, to be educated, to express their voice politically uh, was all changing. And indeed, in many ways, it has changed. It has changed profoundly. Uh, as somebody who lived in Afghanistan for a number of years before 2001 um, and who has gone back uh, repeatedly and its points lived there since then, um, you can't help but have lived and seen uh, what many millions of Afghans have seen, uh, which has been a tremendous amount of change uh, in their society. And at the same time, um, as our guests will tell you, and one who's written a very important new book about, um, there are serious questions still about the future of uh, the Afghan state, about the survival of the political system, about certainly its financial and tax systems. Uh, and uh, a lot of that needs to be examined, both so that we can learn lessons for Afghanistan uh, and the future of the aid relationship and the citizen-state relationship, uh, but also so that we can learn lessons for other places as well. Um, the interest around the world in what have been commonly become known as fragile states is only rising. Um, if you look, for example, at uh, the incidence of extreme poverty around the world, which is something that we pay a lot of attention to here at ODI, um, now 50% of the world's population that are in extreme poverty 
uh, are in fragile states, and we expect that to rise to two-thirds by 2030. Uh, needless to say, many of the challenges that the world um, is interested in and finds itself confronted by, uh, whether it's about uh, extremism, conflict, uh, forced displacement, the rise of pandemics, uh, the ability to respond effectively to climate change, food insecurity. These are all issues that are especially felt most strongly by people in fragile states um, and which in some cases may serve as places that develop them and unfortunately um, export them abroad. So these are going to be profound questions uh, for our societies, north, south, east, and west, for donors and recipients, and most importantly, the citizens of these places alike over the next 10 to 15 years. And so what we are here to ask ourselves today is what have we learned from the relationship of the donor community to Afghanistan? Fundamentally, has that promoted a stronger delivery of services? Has it promoted a stronger state? Has it promoted, indeed, what I think for many of us is at the root of all of these questions, which is, has it promoted a stronger citizen-state relationship and strengthened the social contract so that the government of Afghanistan and its people ultimately are the ones who are going to have to carry this work forward? Are they in charge? Are they enabled or disabled uh, by aid? Um, and what have we learned, particularly over the last 16 years? Um, and we're very lucky to have three speakers with us who think a lot about these questions. First, uh, and who's going to be our first speaker, is uh, Nematul Bijan from the Blavatnik School uh, of Government at Oxford University, uh, who has recently written this terrific book, Aid Paradoxes in Afghanistan, Building and Undermining the State. Uh, so the title says it all. Uh, there's a lot of complexity there. Um, and Nematullah is going to start us off with a description of what is in this book, uh, what is his research found, um, and then we'll move on to other questions. Uh, but also with us, uh, we have Pablo Jagus. Uh, I, I completely, uh, he tried to tell me how to say it, Janguas. That's right. Sorry, I wrote it down on the wrong page. Um, from the Effective States and Inclusive Development Center at the University of Manchester, and hopefully with us virtually, uh, we have Ashley Jackson. Can I confirm that, Ashley? Yes, hi. Great, so we have you in voice, but uh, maybe not in video, is that right? Yeah, okay. Um, and Which is gonna make it harder for us to read your subtle cues. So Ashley, I know that you know this. Ashley is from ODI, uh, but, but in addition to when uh, she's asked, she's gonna pipe in so that we know she's out there um, and, and has something to say. Um, I would like to ask all of you, uh, both who are with us um, and who are out there watching online, uh, to engage in the conversation. Um, first of all, um, you can do that not by turning off your phones, although please do silence them. Although if you're watching virtually, maybe you don't need to silence them, but don't turn them off uh, because we want you to join us online and we've got two ways to do that. Uh, one is uh, virtually, you can actually send us questions directly through various platforms, uh, but we also want you uh, to join us on Twitter. The hashtag is Fragile States, um, and our handle is at ODIDev. Uh, so without anything further, uh, Namatula, 
you uh, have an incredible background because not only did you live some of this experience in the Ministry of Finance, in the Afghan government, as the sausage was being made, as critical decisions were being made, uh, but you also have taken time, which is incredibly valuable for all of us, to be able to step back, to think about your experiences, to look at the larger theoretical frameworks and what others have said and written about these things and drawn some conclusions. So share with us the most interesting stuff. Thank you, Alex. Uh, I'm deeply honored to, to be here, and uh, I thank ODI for organizing this uh, event and for our wonderful audience uh, for joining us today. Uh, since uh, 1990, the absolute number of people living in po poverty has been uh, falling, and for a quarter century, democracy has been uh, spreading. But these global uh, trends have not been sufficient to reduce fragility. We have many countries uh, with a range of interdependent uh, failings, um, which are not on track towards sustainable economic development, have citizens live uh, uh, in fear, and which cannot uh, uh, deliver services. In this book, I have tried to unpack this problem by looking at one of the most challenging and dyna dynamic place in the world, Afghanistan after 2001. Uh, three factors uh, inspired me to write this book, as you mentioned. Uh, my first-hand experience of a state building as a participant and also someone who was affected by the process and the centrality of not only revenue but sources of revenue for a state building in general and Afghanistan in particular. In the book, I uh, examine how foreign aid uh, affected the state building. Uh, to provide a little bit uh, information about the background of my research, my initial plan was to uh, study taxation or the impact of tax revenue on a state building in Afghanistan. But after doing my field work, um, interviewing people, collecting the data, <coughs> I found that tax revenue had minimal impact on the process of a state building in Afghanistan. Then I changed uh, the focus of my thesis to foreign aid and state building. In the book, I uh, look how uh, the existing uh, state institutions were um, uh, strengthened and new ones were created. In particular, uh, I look how donors supported government reforms to uh, improve the taxation system, uh, how government reorganized the state's fiscal management system, and how aid dependency or the types of aid dependency which Af Afghanistan endured, uh, including over-reliance on off-budget uh, aid mechanism which bypassed the state, affected the state and society fiscal relationship. Uh, three findings um, emerged from this study. Uh, two is related to Afghanistan, which I discussed briefly now, and one is related to the theory of state building. First, I found that uh, there has been a PAD dependency in the process of state building in Afghanistan. Since mid-18th century, um, uh, external sources of revenue in the form of tribute, subsidies, and foreign aid uh, have been a major source of income 
uh, shaping or affecting the characteristic and structure of the state in Afghanistan. Therefore, the flow of aid to Afghanistan after 2001 reinforced the building of what I call it a aid an aid-based rentier state. The second finding uh, is related to uh, what happened after 9-11. Uh, I found that aid had paradoxical impacts. Uh, on the one hand, aid uh, contributed to economic growth, uh, expansion of public services such as health and uh, um, access to education. But on the other hand, heavy aid dependency or the types of aid, type of aid dependency that Afghanistan endured, including over-concentration or over-reliance on off-budget funding, uh, had negative implications for accountability and the state building. The paradoxes can be observed through four processes, which I discuss in the book. First, um, account, uh, upward accountability to, towards donors. The types of aid dependency that Afghanistan endured uh, made the government increasingly preoccupied with and accountable to donors. Second, uh, creation of a parallel public sector, the flow of more than two-thirds of foreign aid outside the government budget and national mechanisms uh, created a, um, a parallel public sector which was fiscally much bigger than the uh, state permanent institutions. Third, paradoxical tax outcomes, the exception, exemption of military and development aid from tax uh, prevented the uh, emergence of a harmonized taxation system because there were dual rules being applied. And also, um, over uh, concentration of the government and its international uh, development partners on revenue generating targets um, neglected the politics of taxation and the need for the emergence of a fiscal social contract around taxation in Afghanistan. And the fourth finding. Uh, divergence in uh, state-society relationship because both the government and the societal actors such as NGOs and civil society organizations were increasingly preoccupied with donors in dealing or uh, bargaining uh, in regard to funding that led and in some cases exacerbated the existing gap between the state and society. Yeah, I, I conclude uh, with these remarks. <laughs> <laughs> I'll start for one last question really quickly. We're, we're, we're not going to go to audience yet, but we'll, we'll have plenty of time for it, I promise. Just something I didn't catch, honestly, okay. Um, so let me ask you just one quick follow-up question, okay? Um, legitimacy. It's a big topic. Uh, can you help everybody understand what it is you, you mean by legitimacy and how you measure that? Well, uh, in, in my case, uh, legitimacy, uh, although the focus of my book is very much on state capacity, uh, well, whether uh, citizens trust uh, institutions, because I'm uh, talking about inst inst institutional legitimacy, uh, whenever uh, there is a problem, whether to go to solve the problem through uh, state institutions or not, these are some of the, the measures I have been applying. Good. Um, all right, we're going to come back to you. Um, I'm going to uh, now move 
to uh, you, uh, Paulo. Um, you may want to have some general comments on that. Um, uh, but I'm curious about how you see what Namad has laid out in light of the broader work that you do on state building. Right. <clears throat> thank you for, for having me and thank you all for coming. I think what's, what was really fascinating to me engaging with uh, Nemat's work is that there was, it was a case that I've barely touched uh, just tangentially, uh, mostly even as a concerned citizen you know, of a, of a donor country. But yet some of the challenges that he's identified analytically resonate very deeply with other countries that, are, that I've been to, that I've studied, that I've worked on. Um, I think there's many features of Afghanistan that make it unique in our eyes, like it's, it's history, it's difficult terrain, it's um, problems crafting a national identity, the fact that it's been used as a no man's land by great powers at times, as a rentier state. Um, so many processes happening at the same time, democratization, post-conflict recovery, development, state building. But I, didn't th I don't think this is a distinction in kind. I think it's a distinction in degree. I think these problems are to some extent present in other post-conflict states, in other fragile states, but even in other non-fragile states. I think at the core, what his book is about is the challenge of institutional change. Um, in this case, it so happens that the actors advocating for institutional change, besides the actual reformers, tend to be foreign sponsors who are more or less attuned to the political realities on the ground. Um, and we know that there's this aid institutions paradox. Aid tends to have negative incentives uh, because it brings in a lot of money. It attracts all the talent. It forces NGOs to change how they work. Uh, local actors self-select into the aid business and they disconnect from the reality on the ground. But that's not a, uniquely, um, a unique problem to Afghanistan. I think that's a problem across the board. What we have here is the acuteness of the problem. And, and the risk, I think what's really interesting here, is the risk of creating an aid rentier state. I think this is what's really fascinating about this particular case. And can you say something about the, I think when people think about this challenge, they also often think of it as a sequencing challenge, right? Because you're, you're dealing with a little bit of a chicken and egg problem of creating the institutional capacity that you need in order to do the things that you want to do, and that requires resources, and then to do those resources they're not going through the institutions that don't have the capacity yet to do them. So what is it about the Afghanistan case from what you've read or others that, that you think, what does it tell you about how donors should be thinking about that question? I definitely don't think sequencing is the right analytical approach. You're talking about parallel processes, right? So the issue is how to find synergies between parallel processes. Uh, and not to try to postpone certain achievements or certain outcomes until you've achieved certain others because it may take years, decades, centuries. Uh, I, for one, having studied history, I don't think of Afghanistan as a failure in terms of international assistance or state building by local actors. It takes time. These things take time. So what, a better, more productive way of thinking about this is parallel processes. And what are the links that we can build between those processes so that reformers are not isolated? basically. We don't pick isolated champions. We contribute to more sustainable coalitions. Um, I want to go to you, Ashley. Somebody told me the other day that David Cameron said that the hardest uh, part of uh, building a society that respects the rule of law is the last 500 years. Um, Ashley, are you able to hear us okay?
uh, well, now we have a picture but no voice. I think the <laughs> voice would have been better. Let's see if we can get Ashley back up. Maybe you guys can give me a signal when, when she's there, and I'll, uh, I'll, I'll throw a question uh, back uh, to you, Namat. Um, so l let, me, let me pick up on this issue of, of uh, I, I agree that maybe sequencing is a challenging way of thinking about it, um, and yet you raised this issue, uh, which was a favorite of President Karzai, about parallel structures and the creation of parallel institutions. Um, and I think that the tension is that if you have an ambition to do something, deliver services, whatever it is, and maybe even an expectation among the population that has been raised by all of this talk about a new beginning and resources coming in, um, that if you don't have the institutional capacity um, to be able to do that, do you hold off and build that institutional capacity slowly and not deliver the services? Or do you deliver the services through parallel means, or is there some other way of thinking about it that, that I'm not describing? one of the most important question. Uh, so in situations like uh, Afghanistan, we had in uh, uh, late 2001 or early 2002, the, the state was extremely weak and fragmented and not able to deliver services. And also there was an urgent need to uh, deliver services. But uh, the problem with the parallel sector which emerged in Afghanistan, it was not uh, that sector first, the question is in terms of uh, whether that uh, parallel mechanism is a permanent mechanism or transitional mechanism, first question. Second, how that parallel mechanism operates, because you cannot deny the citizens of the right to have access to, let's say, schools, clinics. But the problem is about the process. It's not what you deliver, but how you go through that process and how you manage it. Um, the way it happened in Afghanistan, that, that parallel sector was fiscally much bigger than the permanent public institutions. Let me give you the <coughs> figures between uh, 2002 and 2010, out of $56 million being disbursed, uh, only ten, uh, above 82% or 82% went to uh, the parallel public sector. Uh, it made policy formulation much more difficult and also aid coordination much more difficult. Uh, so another problem with that approach was, uh, or I call it over-concentration, um, too much focus to deliver to that mechanism. It led to the neglect of the state. The state is weak, corrupt, ignore it. So we will have another mechanism. But after, let, let's say, 10 years, a decade, and we are coming saying, okay, now the state should deliver. It's something, uh, it's a, it looks like a mechanism. You ask someone to watch a program, then expect that person to be an expert. So um, institutions learn through uh, action by doing. But also the, the question was uh, a disconnect between uh, these two sectors or lack of alignment, uh, I would call it. Uh, so. So the, these are the, some of the challenges, the size, uh, how uh, that operates, whether that's aligned with uh, um, local mechanisms or not. But another question emerges that there could be uh, other alternatives like hybrid mechanisms where that governments and donors can get together and work. And 
you have the, uh, the experience of working in Afghanistan, especially the Afghanistan Reconstruction Trust Fund. It worked uh, very well. It was somehow uh, between off-budget and on-budget, but both the government and the international actors were working together. Any luck? Ashley, you can hear us now? Yes, I can. Sorry, this is part of the course. <laughs> That's okay. Um, so I, I hope that you've been able to, to hear some of this. I, I wonder if you could just say a few words about your experience and the research that you've been doing and particularly looking at the relationship between service delivery and, and strengthening the government and the government's legitimacy. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's it was very interesting to read uh, what NEMAT pulled together because I found myself really, it took me back to 2008, 2009 when I first went to Afghanistan. And indeed, it was a shocking situation where the majority of aid bypassed the government. But not only that, the Ministry of Finance um, had no idea what donors were doing. The, the donors didn't even report to the government where they were spending their money, what they were doing. So it wasn't as though there was a failure of coordination. It was it was steps before that. I mean, that there was this real lack of transparency. Um, you had an overarching development strategy, but donors obviously and, and very blatantly ignored it. Um, they had committed to benchmarks, which then their own actions ensured there's no hope of, of anyone ever achieving. Um, I mean, part of that, I think, we have to look at the donor objectives that was really being driven by, at the time, provincial reconstruction teams, by military objectives. Uh, many donors have their own provinces that they're more concerned about or their own sectors, the Italians as rule of law and um, the Germans with police. And so I think the whole ways in which coordination were organized from the outset fed and facilitated what this parallel, um, this parallel structure that Nemat's work really clearly articulates. Um, but just to move on very quickly to, to service delivery, what we did with the Secure Livelihoods Research Consortium was really investigate that relationship between um, service delivery in the state. And I think what we found, and this covered you know, seven fragile countries, including Afghanistan, which is, is the piece I worked on, what we found was there wasn't a clear-cut relationship. Um, you know, in Afghanistan, you have uh, education is provided by the state, indeed, but the basic package of health services, the, the health care that most Afghans rely on, is provided by NGOs under the blanket of the state, under the Ministry of Public Health. And so how, you know, if, say, the children is providing your health care, do you really associate that with state legitimacy or not? Um, it, it's very complex. And we found those sort of th those patterns across each of the countries. And I think that's really where the state legitimacy service delivery um, literature is going. It's going away from these sort of counterinsurgency fragility assumptions that, you know, if you provide services, you'll address fragility. Well, it's not that simple, and it certainly wasn't that simple in Afghanistan. And, but, but can you, that, that's really helpful. Can you say something, though, about whether um, the provision of services outside of, of government, was that what people were looking for? Were they in other words, were they happy that there was a government that was providing an environment in which they could receive services regardless of where they got it? Or did they care about where the services actually came from? Well, I think it's really difficult to make that level of, of broad generalization. Let's say if, 
if um, you were living in Bamiyan and you had, uh, as Nama was, was recalling in our conversation before, is a really peaceful province and you have this uh, PRT that's doing pretty benign stuff, there's no conflict. Um, yeah, it does undermine the local government for that PRT to be doing veterinary services or to be, you know, um, handing out stuff in schools. Like, it, it, that just doesn't make sense. It's not efficient. It's not effective. Um, but it was a situation that a lot of these more peaceful provinces found themselves in. There are, um, however, apologies. Uh, there are, however, <laughs> yeah, um, there are, however, if you look at places like Kandahar and um, Jalalabad, where the, the conflict was really on fire, um, you had a whole hearts and minds approach. Okay, we're going to keep moving and see if we can get uh, Ashley back. So. Let me ask you, uh, you, you know, you made this important uh, provocative statement far too early to judge whether it's been success or failure. This stuff takes a long time. Meanwhile, you have girls out of school. You have people not getting health care. Um, is it right to suggest that there should be a holding off of the delivery of services without the legitimate robust state capacity or does it make sense to go ahead and deliver by whatever means um, while you work on the longer term project of actually building a state whose legitimacy may or may not actually be directly tied to the delivery of those, those basic services which people lack? Well, uh, my answer, short answer is no, because uh, that will uh, undermine the development process. But the question is how to do it we can do it in a parallel way, uh, way, building institutions, delivering services, but linking them with each other, that that parallel public sector, which is delivering services, uh, does not undermine institution building, or the institution building process does not undermine service delivery. So we need a comprehensive uh, um, approach or policy that can uh, uh, address the, the, the challenge we are facing. Because often what the problem is, this um, short-termism approach, we need to do something, let's do it, and neglects the, 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 the need for long-term uh, um, uh, development and the need for those capabilities that can uh, protect citizens in the future or deliver services. Is, is Ashley back or? Paul, I don't know if this is something that you can comment on, but I want to I take this comment in the frame of a deeply, violently contested political space, right? Because we're not just talking about an abstract process of building uh, a government over time. What we were talking about is an argument being made that, that the government's legitimacy and the ability to get stuff done, the short-termism that drove so much of the policymaking, was predicated on an idea that if you don't do that, uh, others are going to come in and, and take that legitimacy. Um, and that was a platform of the Taliban, that they will deliver justice that you're not getting from your government. Uh, maybe even services, they messed a lot with the electricity, uh, that, 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 that in a contest, um, is it right to say still kind of 
hold on, do things slowly, or is there an urgency that does need to be responded to and you list you 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 know you you risk losing the the war for want of the fighting the battle correctly? So I think um Yes, there is an urgency, uh, of course, and there's a moral urgency after all, right? If you have a humanitarian concern and you have the ability to help people who need assistance at the moment, like, I believe you should pursue that line of action. But it's equally self-defeating to build clinics that will be empty in a few years or will not be staffed in a few years, as it is to build systems in a ministry that has no real reach over the territory. So those things have to happen in conjunction, probably. Now, the argument, or, or rather the assumption, that if you don't do it, you're automatically delegitimizing the state, I would say is context-specific. The United States does not provide public health care and is not seen to be an illegitimate state, right? <laughs> All I'm saying, this is, is go, it goes to the politics of the country. Um, is the Taliban problem one of legitimacy or one of control over the territory? We could argue about that. Uh, I think there's other elements to gaining legitimacy as a state, but definitely in the meantime, the, the visual, the obvious, the tangible provision of services can be an ingredient to that, but it is not a magic bullet. And it has to be accompanied by investment in emancipation for me, basically, or sustainability. Um, which is what, what you were referring to before. Any luck with Ashley? Not yet? Okay. Yeah, I'm here. Oh, you are here. Good. <laughs> I really apologize. Good. You survived the dog um, attack. I, <laughs> yeah. Well, the British Embassy guard dog, yeah. Yeah. So uh, I don't know if, if thing you, I, Did you hear what we were just talking about? Uh, I could. I could. And I, I agree with a great deal of it. I mean, one piece I would add is about the underlying political settlements. I mean, if you don't have a somewhat stable political settlement, which you know by definition is one of the problems with fragility, but if you if you don't have that, if you don't have an inclusive settlement, I think all of these things are likely to be held hostage to um, the the fractures within that. And what I mean is, you know, clinics, uh, ministries, positions, service delivery, aid. It will all go to coalition building. It will all go to um, the fighting war that hasn't resolved in, in many ways. That's what we've seen in, in Afghanistan. And so I think there's a balance between focusing on the institution building, which was a great focus of, of, of the Afghanistan intervention, um, if not a successful or focused one, as, as Namat illustrates. But there wasn't really addressing the fact that the underlying political settlement was was deeply flawed um, and coming apart until until it was was way too late, really. So let, let's talk a little bit about the negative sides of, of state building. Um, you know, there was certainly a narrative, uh, which is, I think, a longstanding narrative for Afghanistan, but one that that came back quickly after the intervention that that the state is not something that a lot of Afghans love and for good reason. Um, they've had pretty much most living Afghans have had a pretty negative experience with centralized authority. Um, and although they want it in the abstract, uh, in the direct experience, it's often not a great experience, right? Uh, whether it's dealing with police issues, whether it's concerns about corruption, a lot number of the decisions that, well, this comes a little bit after your period, but we had things like the Kabul bank crisis where the brother of the president, the vice president, et cetera, are seen to be stealing hundreds of millions of dollars. And so I think that there's a little bit of a concern 
uh, both for the population and for donors, like how do you invest in a state that is so demonstrably not doing great things and does giving them more resources, does going on budget, um, is, that, is that creating more problems than it's solving? Well, um, it's a little bit complex in the case of Afghanistan and also in some other cases because the problem is not with the state, but the types of the state we, we got in Afghanistan. It's a new patrimonial state, whoever is leading the state can do whatsoever that person wants. There's lack of rule of law. So here uh, we needed, of course, a state building, but also a state transformation in Afghanistan. And one of the um, issues that which hindered the process was uh, uh, politics of patronage and also um, focus on short-term objectives. Because of that, well, that process affected the initial institutional design uh, 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 since uh, uh, 2002 because most of the senior uh, positions were offered in exchange for political support. Well, it seemed plausible at the beginning uh, to improve short-term stability, but in the long run, it undermined both stability and um, state building uh, uh, in the country. So coming to your question, uh, do Afghans uh, like or dislike the state? We don't have uh, like a, um, a popular survey of that, but what the assumptions are that they are thirsty for rule of law. And uh, so what's happening if you, uh, even in the book I'm talking, this parallel mechanisms uh, were, or seems to be very convenient for the actors. It was not only uh, international actors uh, relied on uh, parallel uh, mechanism, but also President Karzai, he was opposed or opposed uh, this mechanism, but also he was relying on informal networks. He had his own parallel um, network of running the state. So the question is uh, here that the state building is a painful, challenging process or institution building. And uh, often the politicians and also other actors, they have short-term objectives. That's the contradiction or the paradox uh, in here. Um, that's great. I'm going to ask you uh, go in one other direction before we open up to the audience. I want to talk about uh, the future. Uh, so we are where we are, uh, and let's pretend that uh, everybody in here is on the Security Council or runs a donor organization or an Afghan ministry, and uh, we've now absorbed these great lessons uh, from uh, the experiences that have been shared here. And we need to think about what are we going to do to change things? How is this going to succeed going forward? Um, and so first of all, Ashley, if you're still with us, um, yes. I, yep, I, um, I, want to, I want to go to you um, to ask a little bit about what, is, what do you draw um, from this for how things um, can and, and should be done differently, whether it's about the provision of basic services, humanitarian assistance, and other things. Are there ways that we should be thinking about doing this that are different uh, from what has happened or, or maybe some interesting trends that you're seeing that are, are, are putting things in a more positive direction? Yeah, I don't know about more positive. Well, 
I'll just tell you a little bit about what I've been thinking about and working on recently in relation to that. And that's looking at how the Taliban interfaces with uh, service delivery. So how it regulates healthcare, education, justice, uh, development, taxation, all of these things. So the flip side of uh, institution building in a way. And what we've seen in the past few years is that the Taliban has really co-opted and sought to regulate, you know, the, the institutions that were built at local level, the, the national health care program, BPHS. They know the BPHS like the back of their hand. They've developed uh, relationships with ministries. So the shadow minister on the Taliban side at provincial level will likely have a relationship with his education or health counterpart. Um and in, in some bizarre cases, the Taliban is sought to really improve how things work. Um, and this doesn't mean necessarily that the Taliban writ large <laughs> is doing this, but that local uh, contingents who feel disenfranchised and who have joined the Taliban have found a way to work with state institutions um, and systems to improve service delivery. Last spring, they um, shut down a number of health clinics or demanded improvements from NGOs and the Ministry of Public Health uh, to improve health care in their areas. Because rightly, uh, Taliban areas uh, get less aid, get less support, get less institutions and services than government areas. So you're seeing these really strange and interesting local political settlements uh, coalesce around service delivery. And in a, in a very strange way, that's promising to me because it means that people can work together on all sides to sort of improve healthcare or to allow access to education for, well, for at least boys and girls up to a certain age. Um, it becomes more complex when we ask, you know, what does that mean? But it does, it does give me a little bit of hope that, you know, a power sharing agreement could, could happen or at least informally, that you could not lose the gains around service delivery that have been made in Afghanistan, um, regardless of, of, of what may come, that the various actors who, who fight a war against one another can actually work together around education and health. Um, so yeah, so that's how I'd respond to that. Thanks. Uh, Paolo, uh, you know, in the last couple of years, uh, the idea of helping governments raise more taxes, more revenues has become so popular, it even has its own acronym, DRM, Domestic Resource Mobilization. And in 2015, all the governments of the world got together to talk about, they created something called the Addis Tax Initiative to talk about investing more in this capacity. Um, I'm curious, is this, a, is this a fruitful direction? Is that going to change things in a positive way in the fragile states context? Can I just say no? Uh, I mean, yes, of course, theoretically, yes. But as the case of Afghanistan demonstrates, there's more to revenue mobilization than just having a strong national revenue authority. It's about the politics of taxation. That's why states always tax customs and excises. That's easier to do than a capitation tax, than a personal income tax, for which you need a census, for which you need inspectors, for which you need extension of your, of your uh, reach, bureaucratic reach, into the entire territory. That is not, it's not a, a short-term solution. That, to me, is a long-term ideal. Um, the short-term solution, for me, is to have smarter aid. And I don't mean that in a, in a glib way, but in a very precise, let's develop tools 
that, that match our strategy to the context. Let's develop programs that are designed to be a little bit more flexible and a little bit more politically smart. Uh, this is not about, to me, what the Security Council says, because at the end of the day, you have country offices, you have missions, and they respond to incentives. The incentive at the moment coming out of places like the UK is value for money, which is why you see donors going into service delivery. But at the same time, w the space for donors is contracting, non-traditional donors, philanthropies. That means that donors like DFID, USAID, and others are going to be left with the most difficult places and the most difficult transformations. Now, if donors are to remain relevant going forward, high polluted ideals are fantastic. I think w let's focus on smarter projects projects that build local capacity, projects that build synergies, projects that stimulate a better conversation between local actors who ultimately are the protagonists of change. Um, so aid as a catalyst to me is the future, not revenue mobilization. Mm. So I think one of the lasting contributions of your book is likely the really the thinking about tax and the relevance uh, in this, uh, both in this case of Afghanistan, but also more broadly in fragile states and how that's relevant, how it's not relevant. Um, what do you want to see? Um, Paolo just uh, talked about uh, some of these instruments, uh, mentioned, for example, the IMF, which now doesn't have a mission in Afghanistan for security reasons, full-time on the ground, uh, which we think should change, by the way. Um, what is it that you would like to see, having really thought about this uh, in terms of a partnership with the international community and these institutions actually to strengthen what good can come out of focus on taxation and domestic resource mobilization in Afghanistan? Uh, I would like to uh, mention that uh, state building, especially in situations of fragility or aid dependency, is complex and context dependent. <laughs> Uh, which requires uh, um, donor or international community to be more flexible and innovative. Coming to the issue of taxation, um, so uh, we, ha we have seen paradoxes in the cases such as Afghanistan. Uh, on the one hand, building the taxation system, and on the other hand, undermining it. But the question is about the long-term development uh, for which uh, a fiscal social contract will be at the core of the process. Uh, what we have at the, uh, at the moment is IMF, World Bank, they are concerned about the sustainability of the state building process, and they define it in a way that the government will be able to finance its operate operations or development programs, which is a legitimate concern. But uh, that's not enough, especially in... Um, Situations of fragility, the state and citizen uh, relationship is the key, and often it lets uh, too much focus on revenue generate, gen generating targets, neglects the politics of taxation, which has been, I mean, uh, taxation has been at, uh, or had a central role in the development of, his, uh, of the state and shaping of the state. Uh, so, um, what's required uh, a little bit more um, to think beyond generating revenue and uh, think of uh, how we can build a fiscal social contract using taxation in the long run uh, so that we can have a more sustainable state or su sustain the state building process and also an improved relationship between the state and citizens. Great. 
Uh, I'm now going to open up for questions, and I'm going to ask my friend Kate first if she uh, still uh, wants to clarify or has a new question. Um, uh, what I'm going to say is that we have an incredibly knowledgeable audience here. I know that just by looking around. Uh, so please, uh, we want to try to get in as many questions as possible. Uh, ask a question, and if you have a uh, comment that you're trying to disguise as a question, just make it brief. Um, we also have a number of things coming in online as well, so I'm going to go back and forth. But let's take a couple of questions from the audience. I'll ask the panelists to pay attention, respond to what you want, and then we'll go to another round. And please wait for the microphone is my final uh, request. It's Kate Clark from the Afghanistan Analyst Network. So my, my request for clarification was you talked about tax differentiating between sectors, military and aid or something like that in your initial presentation, which I didn't catch. Yeah, I mentioned that both uh, uh, military and development aid was exempt from tax. Okay, yeah. thank you. Which was considerable amounts of money. Yeah. So my other question, you said we can't wait for service delivery. Or you can't make people wait for service delivery, right? Now, right. Can't wait for institution to, build, to, to be built and deliver services. Okay, it, as I remember in 2001, 2002, I might have been one of the few people there who thought that the aid onslaught was a desperately bad mistake uh, at the time of the Tokyo conference when everyone was talking about putting aid into Afghanistan. Um, and it seemed to me that if you don't sort out security in the country, it doesn't matter how much aid you give to it, it's not gonna work. And the, the number of, what people seemed to be upset about on the ground was the commanders who'd taken over their local area. It wasn't about setting up schools. They actually wanted the international powers to deal with the security. But what happened was you had an aid influx that actually built up those men's power. And that's what we're left with. We're left with a state that mm. where um, ex-armed men have an awful lot of power. They've benefited from the aid. And we have a, a, an extreme example of rentier dependency. So. You may say you can't make people wait, but actually at some time the money will be switched off because Afghanistan doesn't have the capacity to fund its own schools and, and, and clinics. Okay, so good. Yeah, well, well, I'm gonna take that. We're gonna take... Sorry, No, there was a question-ish element to it. Uh, this woman in the front row, please. Yep. Prahila Siddiqui, the Director of Arkhonda Trust for Afghan Women's Education. First of all, I'm thankful to Nema John and all our presenters for their excellent presentation and the brilliant book. Um, my suggestion, Nema John, is about the um, place of the citizens. How do you place the citizens as a key player of development process? Also in the process of, uh, in the capacity building process and in delivery, uh, service delivery process, where do you place them? to increase the accountability of the government as well? That's a great question. I'm gonna go with the gentleman just behind her. Sorry. Um, thank you very much. Jawit Nader from BUG, which is a British and Irish agencies Afghanistan group. Um, my question is partly what Rahila John asked. We spoke a lot about state building. We didn't speak uh, uh, nation building. Um, we didn't even, even mention the word nation building at all. Um, I mean, a lot of people would argue that in fragile states like Afghanistan, uh, one needs need to be pragmatic. Um, whether I mean, 
a black cat or a white cat, as long as it catches the, the mice, it's a good cat, right? And whether um, NGOs or the state create healthy, resilient citizens, I mean, it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, those citizens will continue to live in that country and what you need to focus is on creating security. So what, what do you think about that? Great, so we've got three questions. I'm gonna throw back to the panel. I will summarize as, should you give aid until the security situation is sorted out? Uh, how are citizens really able to be involved in demanding and holding government accountable? And then this broader question of nation building, it's not just about institutions, but it's about a large cultural surround of things. So first to you, Namat. Yeah, thank you. And uh, <clears throat> I should mention, I'm so delighted to see some of my old colleagues and friends in here, Rohila John, Mr. Noder, Isar, and others. Uh, we have worked together in Afghanistan, and I learned from them. Uh, in regard to the question of uh, security and aid, uh, Afghanistan is very complex, fragmented. It's not equally insecure and equally secure. Bamiyan is very secure, the center part, but South is not as secure as um, Bamiyan is or other parts of the country. In terms of the question, uh, I will be quick on that. The way it was delivered, uh, so that the argument was that um, uh, development intervention should, uh, will help to improve the security situation. But that created perverse incentives in those areas which were secure, and uh, it created a sense of, okay, we should create some types of insecurity so that we can get funding. So that was one of, uh, a, a dilemma. In terms of uh, uh, the question of uh, the role of citizens in Afghanistan, I go back to what we were doing in Afghanistan, Roelajon. So we were part of that process, um, building uh, this community forums out of which the National Solidarity Program emerged. One of the most successful programs in Afghanistan and uh, among uh, uh, other uh, countries in a similar uh, situation. So what the process is that local, locals are uh, engaged from the very beginning, design, uh, implementation, and monitoring of the pro uh, projects at the local level. So people would come together to select uh, their representatives, uh, men and women. They had their own councils. And we didn't have any report of like uh, corruption, major corruption, waste uh, through this process. And also it brought the the, the state and citizens together, and I would call it as the only pr platform that, uh, among others, um, that people uh, trusted. Coming to, to the, uh, the nation building question, yeah, that's a major uh, issue, and uh, um, especially in uh, situations of fragility without having a, a, a common identity, identifying common interests among different segments of uh, the society or having inclusive institutions that anyone can uh, see themselves, uh, a, so a state building will be um, so difficult. So we cannot neglect that. But as far as my research here uh, uh, is concerned, so the focus of the research um, was on building the capacity of the state. Uh, Ashley, are you, uh, were you able to hear those questions? 
Um, yeah, yeah, indeed. And they're, they're tough to respond to. I mean, these are really complex questions. Um, Jawa's question about uh, nation building sort of grabs me. I mean, because that's one thing that the donor community and outsiders cannot possibly do. Um, that is an essential part of of security long term and a viable state in Afghanistan is, is to have a national identity around which all Afghans can coalesce. And that that process of what Afghanistan means is still happening, but that is a uniquely Afghan task to to figure out. Um, and I think we see the symptoms of how difficult that is in in what Namat just talked about and what Kate also talked about, the idea that, you know, institution building and, and even small little aid projects are simple, the desire for protection from nefarious actors in a community that can just come in and, and do whatever they like, uh, that's held hostage to the networks that you have to ally yourself with because there are no no real durable institutions. You have to seek protection, you have to seek resources through through individuals and and relationships. And that's still very much the case and perhaps increasingly so as things become more contentious um, and more insecure. Well it's hard. Um, both nation building, state building have historically been violent processes. Um, but all we care in the international community is about boundaries on a map that we don't want to change. You know, a very pragmatist person would say, let's forget about the boundaries, let whatever groups are in Afghanistan build their own states. But that's not how we work. So either we, the international community, violently, coercively impose a version of the nation, a version of the state, or we try to stabilize some of the violence that's happening at the moment. But it is, again, as Ashley mentioned, that's something for Afghans to decide for the most part. We have an interesting question coming in from Nepal. Um, Mr. Yub Raj Basnet asks that a fragile country is not in a position to bargain or demand on sectoral investment while international and non-government agencies run a kind of parallel government for development. Please throw some light on managing transparency and accountability to improve this. Something that you talked about um, but thinking practically about what it's like to live in the real world of aid agencies and every institution that has its country-level presence and their specific people and specific interests. And how, do you, how do you think we can get better at managing that both complex array of disunited demands, but also just an expectation that they are the policy setters uh, and not those at the local level? Well, yeah, a difficult question. <laughs> uh, well, uh, it, uh, it will depend uh, or depends on, on the context. Uh, and at the beginning, um, uh, it's difficult for the recipient or uh, government to, to bargain or uh, is not in a position to, to bargain or enforce or impose something. And so, the, the process uh, seems to be donor driven. So as for whenever we are talking about international policy response, we are talking about certain rules that the international community will, or donors will respect, including uh, one of them would be uh, the establishment of a parallel public sector. That's the question. And uh, um, there is uh, uh, an argument, uh, or one would argue that in the absence of, um, popular demand by the recipient citizens is 
accountability um, upwards accountability to donors is much better than the absence of accountability or, or demands. And uh, well, um, that could be valid as far as the concern is with building uh, public financial management systems, uh, uh, promoting transparency and accountability mechanisms. But a concern with that line of argument is that it's less likely that uh, the donors and recipient citizens' interests are always and fully aligned. So if they're not aligned, what do you do? Well, uh, well the question is, uh, who need, needs to do it? Because we got like a weak state, uh, difficult to bargain, and uh, we got uh, um, fragmented or divided society, and we have the international actors who uh, will have the final say. So here we need to rethink of the eight practices or the international practices towards uh, uh, f uh, situations of fragility. And uh, um, if we expect like um, the recipient governments to act, uh, um, I'm not sure about that. But and here in this case, uh, it very much depends on uh, uh, don on the donors or uh, the framework they they're uh, adapting. <coughs> Uh, Ashley Pollard, do you have anything to, to add to this? Nobody's raised the New Deal for Fragile States, which came out of Busan in 2011, which was hypothetically <laughs> supposed to address some of this challenge. Uh, I disagree with the premise. I think the leaders and elites of fragile states have more bargaining power than is often believed, mostly because donor agencies have an incentive to push money out of the door. Right? And, and big fragile states is one of the few remaining places where you can have like a 100 or 200 million pound program. Uh, now, what does a leader do with that bargaining power is it's, it's a local matter. If you talk to Paul Kagame in Rwanda about what he wants to do, he'll have some very strong ideas. And he will say no to donors a lot. Uh, but if you talk to Hamid Karzai, he'll maybe say, just give me the money. Yes, 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 I'll promise to do whatever you tell me. Um, so it is, it's not the, the bargaining relationship, it's, it's the elites, which, is, which means how are elites connected to society, who are they accountable to, how uh, free are they to get away with murder uh, when it comes to misusing public funds, whether they're aid money or not aid money. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, just want to dis distinction uh, uh, the question, one, one is how it ought to be and how it is in reality. What I mentioned, I mentioned about the reality what's happening. And uh, um, even let me give you the example of what's happening with off-budget funding. Even if this in, uh, some of the institutions are built, neither the recipient parliament, government, or citizens have any say. I was working on the national budget in Afghanistan. And we were, when we were sending the, the budget to the parliament, we would distinguish between on-budget and off-budget. And it was clear that they didn't have any say about the off-budget funded projects. So in practice, um, we can argue that the recipient should have the ownership, the leaders are playing key role. That, that's something we want them, it should ought to be, but how it happens in the reality is um, it's concerning. Who's signing those aid agreements? Locally. Let, okay, let me give you the example. A donor is coming to a minister, minister of, let's say, health. He's a strong minister saying, 
no, this is not my priority. So then what happens? That donor goes to another minister, will bypass you. The next time, your colleagues will say, it's a stupid decision, say yes. So that's how it works, but that should change. I give the example absolutely, that should change and the locals should lead the process and own the process. Ashley, do you want to uh, raise anything on yeah. this? Yeah. Got, we got a lot of hands up in the room too. Go ahead. Okay, I'll just, I guess I'll just quickly also uh, lay the blame at the feet of donors <laughs> um, and not exercising self-restraint. And I mean, ultimately, if they're going to be institution building and reducing fragility and all these buzzwords and all these theories of change, then their actions have to line up with a theory of change that would result in a stable and capable state. And what you find is, um, especially in Afghanistan, they did repeatedly self-destructive, counterproductive, uh, you know, inefficient uh, things that ultimately, um, you know, as Matt was just saying, they would go to the Minister of Health and say, we would like you to do this. Well, you know, if you're Norway or Sweden or the UK, it's not really up to you to say how the health sector should run in Afghanistan. It should be all donors together with the Afghan government. And that's so rarely happened. So you ended up with a situation you had, of course, Namat mentioned the ARTF and the National Solidarity Program. But you had a situation by the time you got to 2014, then there was an effort to coordinate. Then there was an effort to put, you know, 50% of funding on budgets through mechanisms which were not direct budget support, but like trust funds managed by the World Bank and so on and so forth. So really, I mean, if donors want to talk about, you know, encouraging states to be cohesive and and bargain, they need to to create the conditions to allow states to act in in a unified manner and set policy for themselves, which just didn't happen in the early years in Afghanistan. Great. Let me go over to the far section over here. Uh, the, the hand in the back that has something green on it, but that's all I can see. <laughs> Lizzie Hobbs from King's College. Um, I just kind of wondered what implications actual electoral politics has on state legitimacy. Um, how much you kind of think individual leaders have much salience on kind of general population's views, whether Ashraf Ghani is maybe seen as a little bit more legitimate than Hamid Karzai. Thanks. Okay, and this gentleman right next to me. I um, actually made a really good point about how um, when you had political settlements, um, you were able to improve service delivery. And I was just wondering, what do you think the challenges are of aid acting as a platform to try and promote political settlements? And then the last one just in the middle there. Thank you. Marta Matosek, ODI. Uh, could you please shed more light on uh, the taxation uh, in the context of uh, the fact that um, economy in Afghanistan is, is majorly um, in shadow economy and uh, an extent to which, uh, let's say, uh, local um, warlords have impact on how the taxes are collected and where they are distributed? How? Uh, what kind of solutions do you propose to these uh, challenges? Thank you. Great. Maybe we'll start with you, Ashley, and then work back down towards the mod. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I'll quickly take the political settlements one. I mean, I think that it's it's a it's a phrase that I use a lot, and then a lot of people use a lot, and maybe we don't talk about what it means enough. But I would say. In Afghanistan, political settlements, whatever that might mean, have huge implications for the delivery of aid. Um, ARU and Afghan Think Tank, together with the World Bank, did a phenomenal study looking at political settlements and how they affected healthcare and education delivery in Afghanistan. And what they basically found was that, you know, and with NSP, you found this in communities as well. It's it's the community and local dynamics, the sort of the, the local power holders and where their interests lie, whether or not you have like a thin, uh, you know, top of the pyramid section of elites who have subjugated uh, everyone else or whether it's more egalitarian, you have to understand these things in order to design programming at the local level. And, you know, I, I don't think those those kinds of nuances were, were taken into account, even in the most successful programs like National Solidarity Program or the basic package of health services, which then lead to instances where it works kind of well and everyone's invested in it being a success, but there's massive capture in whole provinces or districts that doesn't get addressed um, because everyone's too afraid, A, to disrupt the narrative of success, or B, do the hard work of nuancing a massive national program to deal with you know, the localized constraints. Um, and secondly, on political settlements, I just think you know, part of the problem in Afghanistan was everything was so technocratized. Um, that's not a word, but everything was very technical and apolitical on the surface. And in the language, people talked about it, but everything was super political. And I think you have to come into the room with a political awareness of, okay, how, you know, I have this great idea for institution building, but how's it really going to play out when Karzai has knitted together a government of sort of networks um, that he's beholden to. How is this really going to play out if I want to do subnational governance reforms or build a civil service? Am I really going to have a meritocratic civil service if that's a huge source of rent seeking? And I think those questions were deliberately ignored. Um, so I think that's the, the higher level where political settlements as an idea um, could be used to challenge the way we we sort of uh, pretend that everything is a technical problem when in reality it's not. Mm. I think that's been one of the big negative lessons of the, the experience with the New Deal for <laughs> Fragile States, actually. Paolo? Yeah. Um, yes, I wanted to comment very briefly on the political settlements question. I would say, by and large, aid is, um, it supports or buttresses the existing political settlement, right? To the extent that most aid or rents are likely to be captured by the most powerful actors. That's also for good reason, because in theory, at least, uh, foreign aid is supposed to re respect local ownership. So you're supposed to get the assent of local leaders who are the elected representatives or the official representatives. For a donor to come in and say, I want to change your political settlement, that's going to be frowned upon right, by everybody, even though the Nordics, by, with their pursuit of human rights, have to some extent tried to do that. Uh, but yeah, I don't think this is something that aid can do. Aid, aid missions, aid projects, aid professionals are more likely to work with existing political settlements than try to fundamentally change them, unfortunately. Which in Afghanistan, it may mean working with some unsavory people or people who do not have the country's best interest in mind. Um, the, the question about the elections, Samuel Huntington wrote about the, the two turnover tests of democratization. He was saying that democratic consolidation happens when there's two turnovers between competing factions, 
Those are democratic turnovers, and they are respected. The outcome is respected. And I think that's as, as strong a rule as we have, a rule of thumb for democratic consolidation. To me, the most important thing is not that this president may be more legitimate than that president, is the fact that citizens, to go get back to the question of where are citizens, citizens began to become um, invested in the system and take ownership and take pride in their institutions, not necessarily the factions. But that maybe is a different kind of accountability work that, that, that the international community can support in terms of educating citizens about their own rights, about their own institutions, about their own systems, and trying to make them you know, hold politicians accountable, such that when the inevitable uh, president that tries to go beyond mandate limits or term limits, when, when that inevitably happens, citizens will be in an uproar against that. Citizens will protect the system over the individuals leading that. But to me, it takes time. Thoughts on any of those three questions? Uh, first, in terms of taxation, um, uh, the, the, the share of uh, uh, tax revenue as percentage of GDP is the lowest in Afghanistan is 10%. But it started from 4%, so we can see lots of improvements. Well, but uh, the major challenge is one would think that uh, people in Afghanistan are paying less tax. That's not the case. They are paying uh, different types of taxes, informal taxes, um, which we can call it extortion. When I did my field work, I sat together with one of uh, the members of the business community, and we calculated the taxes they paid, uh, they were paying, it would raise up to 60%, but the formal one was up to 20%. Because what's happening, the Taliban are coming and asking uh, a household to pay tax. If not paying, they can cut off uh, the electricity of that household. That's one example. Or whenever a track is like passing a highway, someone will come a militia group and charge that uh, track. So that's also a type of tax. And corruption is another um, problem. But shadow economy, yes, uh, or uh, informal economy in Afghanistan is huge. How can we transition? Um, to a more formal economy is that we should keep the tax rate as low as possible to encourage them to come within the net of the state. But now the problem is the paradox, again, uh, because of the pressure the government has increased the taxation rate, it discourages people to come within the net, net of the state to pay taxes because there is no incentive. Coming to the issue of election, uh, especially for the people who are, uh, for, for those who study political science and the electoral process, we can see a distinction between two types of legitimacy. One is process legitimacy, and the other, other one I would call it or performance legitimacy. In the case of uh, Afghanistan, we can uh, make that distinction now, especially um, the current president, president is trying to build his legitimacy through performance. Uh, emphasizing on the reforms, making Afghanistan a roundabout of trade in the region. These are some of the elements or uh, issues um, uh, concerning what performance legitimacy. Whether achieved or not, that's a separate question. But in terms of process legitimacy, the electoral process, there has been problem. And uh, so we, we need to distinguish these two. And some of the scholars, they argue that 
uh, well, uh, I do not agree on that, but let me share the, point, uh, the, the view with you that sometimes lack of legitimacy a blessing if the leader is then focusing on performance. We have cases of South Korea and Taiwan. I have been studying, but it was just I shared, but uh, it doesn't mean that I agree on that. Great. Uh, we are almost coming to the end of our time. Um, and in, uh, in a very un-Afghan way, we actually have an event here in, in this room at 2.30 that needs to be completely reconfigured. So as we move to finish, uh, we're going to close in about five minutes, and then I'm going to ask people, uh, sadly, I wish we could all stay here all day and talk, but we're going to have to transition. Um, so I'm going to take one or two more, and then I've got a couple of interesting questions from, I'm going to go to this side has not had its chance uh, last gentleman in the back. Uh, yep, good afternoon. Uh, I'm Rupert Simons. Uh, my organization is called Publish What You Fund, and we were set up by a number of people who used to work in Afghanistan, and um, the, the premise that they wanted to, to put to the test was that if you give the government better data on what the donors are doing, that will improve the government's bargaining position. Now, it seems to me 10 years later, um, that didn't quite happen, but something different happened, which is also interesting, which is there's more comp competition in the aid sector now. The Bretton Woods institutions are no longer the only game in town. An enterprising finance minister can raise loans from half a dozen different uh, Asian and Middle Eastern jurisdictions without needing a sign-off in Washington, DC. I wonder if you think if, the, if that enhances the accountability of the, the aid industry to the government, or it actually weakens it. And then right here up front, the last one. Hi, thanks. It's uh, Maya King from the Blavatnik School of Government. Uh, just noting that it's quite ironic that the donors are not paying any taxes when actually they're using state capacity, arguably quite a lot, uh, particularly in relation to their requirements, but also in the relation to all the government officials who are trying to coordinate them and get information out of them according to the rules they set out and which uh, donors don't obey. <coughs> so it's just a suggestion that maybe donors should find a way to police themselves. Um, one way is they make contributions, but there's a political aspect as well, because even if you have a lot of technical people in the aid management unit, if you don't have the political um, umph to make that happen, then it's still an issue. So maybe one donor should recuse themselves from delivery and set themselves up and say, we're going to be the ones who are going to make this happen, and try and set up some hard sanctions so it actually matters to all the donors in the field offices whether or not they meet the government's requirements which are set out and which are enforced by the donor. Thanks. And we had uh, a question from UNDP Somalia, which I find uh, fascinating. Uh, Zubair Izzat um, asks, um, says that any developing country should pay for their common and development budgets from resources generated and managed by the government. Efficient, transparent, and accountable governments are critical contributions uh, and critical contributions of the private sector are key elements to realize this. Can you share your perspective? And we've talked a little bit about the private sector, and you talk about it more in your book, but it'd be interesting to bring that in. And then the last one is from Tripti, uh, I'm not going to try the last name, from Global Giving, that says, um, I'm interested to know more about the panel's experience on community-led development initiatives and how local actors with or without external aid um, uh, can give us some lessons uh, in terms of donor-driven aid. Um, in other words, maybe a, a third way out of all of this that we've been talking about is actually that communities are, are really the fundamental engine of, uh, of a lot of the development that we're talking about. And as the state slowly 
uh, grows and the donors do their thing, that that's maybe where more of the focus should be. So with that, uh, we're going to go uh, to Ashley, Paolo, and, and, um, and last to Neymat. Uh, we only have about a minute each, uh, but we'll give you the last word. So, Ashley. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I like the comment about donors, really. <laughs> I mean, obviously, I, I sort of said something quite similar. I think um, Nimat makes a lot of really good points in, in his book, and I, I encourage everyone to read that. And we've, we've had a really wide-ranging conversation. But if there's, there's one thing I take from the lesson of Afghanistan is just how badly um, donors sort of exercised uh, operational and strategic hypocrisy, um, how much their left hand, whether it was their military or their political hand versus their development, state building hands undermined each other. I mean, really, um, the lack of coherence was, I think, one of the big downfalls. It wasn't even that what anyone was doing was was bad, but as the map points out, the government didn't know. And if the government knew, maybe it could bargain. That's to say nothing of whether or not the government would have made the right choices in state building, but it should have really been on them and it should have been on donors to be obligated to work together and create an environment in which the Afghan state could uh, build its own institutions rather than sort of being uh, alternately bossed around into doing various things <laughs> and uh, punished for being corrupt, et cetera, et cetera. So I'd leave it there. Um, <clears throat> donors are not monolithic entities. Um, aid organizations in particular are quite messy and sometimes silly and the right hand doesn't know what the left hand is doing. You know, somebody from one department attends a high-level panel on some big issue and the country offices don't know about that. Uh, I don't think we have to put too many hopes on donors' ability to fix these problems. But that doesn't mean that they cannot be part of the solution because of the ability to muster technical know-how and financial capacity. Um, all governments finance themselves besides taxation. Uh, industrialized countries do it through access to private finance. Countries that are endowed with natural resources do it through natural resources. Um, for those countries that have neither, aid is still a necessary resource in the meantime. So it is not, but I wouldn't trust donors to actually Say, do as they say, because the people saying are not the people doing, basically. So I would encourage people to shift the level of analysis from the high-level debate to the practical uh, implementation challenges and to, have, to build that relationship between donor staff and local leaders and local communities. Interesting. Final thoughts, Nirvan. Coming to the issue of private sector is, is key. Uh, both for development and revenue generation and a state building process as well. And uh, one of the questions uh, is that how can a state uh, create like enabling environments for private sector development? Because if there is patronage and corruption, it undermines the development of private sector. We had few cases in Afghanistan, this is the biggest bank which failed, the Kabul Bank. Uh, on, the, on, on the part of uh, uh, traditional or non-traditional donors, I think uh, some of them, uh, them are uh, doing like a good job. Let me give uh, the example of India and Afghanistan because the focus has been on building key infrastructure projects which uh, um, generated jobs 
and connected communities together, like and also um, this electricity transmission line. And last and but not least, but also donors somehow learned. We now we can see uh, a little bit shift in the approach, including USAID, what they are doing in Afghanistan. So uh, a little bit more flexibility, working with uh, with the existing institutions. But uh, yet, uh, uh, it's a challenging process. And what, above all, we need uh, is to have a long-term vision to exit from fragility and think of long-term development. Uh, that's an almost hopeful note. <laughs> uh, we like to end at least with some, uh, um, some thoughts uh, about the future. So I, I'll take from that that there has been some learning within the donor community. Uh, clearly, a lot of people are focused on that, and uh, testament to that is, is you coming here, um, and we really appreciate you coming today. Uh, those of you who have joined us online as well, uh, please continue the conversation uh, inside and outside, um, and uh, please join me in thanking our terrific panelists. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. <laughs>